0: But as we turn now to look at Isaiah, we're going to return to our sermon series through Isaiah. We're in Isaiah 46 today. The title of this morning's sermon is, Take Courage in God's Sovereignty. And the way I want to introduce it is uh, I am a child of the 80s. I was born in 1977, but, you know, a lot of my memories growing up as a boy are from the 80s. And I was introduced to the game of basketball at my local public high school, as an el- or excuse me, my local public elementary school. I was in elementary school at the time, and I discovered the game of basketball, you know, out on the playground. The other boys taught it to me, and I fell in love with it. And uh, my dad was not a huge basketball fan himself, and so as I started to watch some basketball on TV, it became very apparent to me that I was either going to have to cheer for Larry Bird and the Boston Celtics, or Magic Johnson and the Los Angeles Lakers, and I chose Magic Johnson and the Los Angeles Lakers. The reason I chose him was because when Magic Johnson led a fast break, uh, the, 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 it was so exciting, and the excitement of it, the drama of it, wasn't just who he would pass the ball to, It's how he would pass the ball, you know? The no-look pass, the razzle-dazzle, the misdirection. It was just entertaining to watch Magic Johnson on the court. And uh, the point of this illustration is actually about Larry Bird but as a Laker fan, I can't say nice things about Larry Bird without saying a few good things about Magic Johnson's fir- first. So, um, uh, but uh, one of the coaches of Larry Bird, Larry Bird was a Hall of Fame basketball player in the NBA, and one of the stories that one of his coaches tells is that uh, one time they were playing a game against the Seattle Supersonics, and uh, it was a tie-ball game. There were five seconds left. The Sonics had the ball, and they called a timeout, And in the huddle, Larry Bird said, just give the ball to me and get out of the way. Then he went out on court and told the league's best defender what he was going to do when he got the ball. And then he got the ball and did exactly what he said he was going to do, and they won the ball game. Now, what that has to do with Isaiah 46, you're going to have to figure out. I'm not going to tell you in my intro. With a, with a slick segue into uh, Scripture. You're going to have to figure out why I used that Larry Bird illustration, but uh, please turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to Isaiah 46. We're back in our Isaiah series today. I've told you before that Isaiah chapters 40 to 48 are my favorite cluster of chapters in Isaiah as a cluster of chapters, and uh, this is going to be my seventh and last sermon from them, um, because chapter 46 really sums up the argument of these chapters well. Uh, We're going to look at all of chapter 46 together today. Please follow along with me while I read, uh, starting in verse 1 of Isaiah 46. Bel has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beasts. They stoop over, they've bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. They bow down to it, indeed they worship it. They lift it up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer it cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mine, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure." calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay, and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel." The context of Isaiah chapters 40 through 48 is a prophecy that God has given through Isaiah that He will bring about a Babylonian captivity. Yahweh is going to send His people into captivity in Babylon to discipline them for their sins, uh, for breaking the covenant uh, that He has made with them through Moses. Uh, He's going to do that um, for their sins, and specifically for the sin of idolatry, because they are so enamored and enthralled with the gods of other nations. God is going to use this exile then to cleanse His people of the worship of foreign gods, and you know what? It's going to work. It's going to work in the history of the Jewish nation, because from the end of the exile, when they get restored uh, back to their land, even all the way up to the present day, you don't see the Jewish people tending to worship the gods of other nations anymore. That's just not something they do. God's purpose in the captivity was fulfilled. And even though the coming captivity that Isaiah is prophesying about to his people is bad news, there's still hope. God has promised to be gracious to any individual Israelite who will repent and turn from their idolatry. He has promised to be with them during the exile. He won't abandon them while they're away in a foreign country. Um, And their stay in that foreign country, it won't be long. It it certainly won't be as long as their enslavement in Egypt was. A number of decades after this, through the prophet Jeremiah, God uh, prophesied to the people that their stay in uh, the Babylonian captivity would only be 70 years. Now, I know 70 years, is that's like a really long time to us, but I say only because I'm making the point it's not going to be as long as their sojourn and their slavery in Egypt, and God has promised to deliver them at the end of those 70 years in the most unexpected way. He's going to raise up a pagan, uncircumcised, Gentile king named Cyrus, whom He nevertheless calls His anointed one, and Cyrus is going to be a shepherd to God's people by releasing them from their captivity, restoring them to their land, and even uh, volunteering to pay for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple with His own money. Uh, God has promised to deliver His people through Cyrus. Now, three weeks ago, we looked at that Cyrus prophecy in Isaiah 45, and we noted not only the content of the prophecy, but God's motive in giving the prophecy. God gave the prophecy because uh, those other gods that the people of Judah were so enthralled by, those gods don't give detailed, specific prophecies about the future and then bring them to pass, but Yahweh does, right? Predictive prophecy fulfilled in history Uh, shows that Yahweh alone is God, and He wants everybody to know it. It's His apologetic tool to capture the hearts of His people Israel and also to bring Gentiles to faith in Him. And so, as we come to chapter 46, these themes of uh, this prophecy about Cyrus delivering God's people, this theme of how God is different than the idols of the other nations who don't make prophecies, these themes will be continued. Isaiah 46 really is a chapter of contrast. In it, the gods who are burdens are contrasted with the burden-bearing God. In it, the created gods who cannot save are compared and contrasted with the Creator God who saves. That's our outline for the chapter. So, let's look first at these gods of the nations who are nothing more than burdens. Look again at verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 46. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and to the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stoop over, they've bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden but have themselves gone into captivity. Uh, Bel and Nebo were the primary or the most powerful of the Babylonian gods in the Babylonian pantheon of gods. The chief Babylonian god was Bel. He was also known as Marduk, Uh, and his son was Nebo. And if you're a Star Wars fan, you might find this interesting. Nebo's other name was Nabu. That was his other name. And uh, Bel and Nebo were the primary Babylonian gods each year during their New Year's festival. They had these uh, beautifully carved and decorated ornate statues of Bel and Nebo that they would pull out of their temple and parade down the main street of Babylon. And that picture of worshipers carrying their God down the street, that's the perfect picture for what Isaiah is trying to say, the point he's trying to make Uh, trying to make. When you take a closer look at Bel and Nebo, what you find is that they don't stand outside of creation uh, as the creator or creators of all things. They're actually portrayed in Babylonian mythology as part of the creation, and they're not deity. They are nothing more than amplified humanity. They're like versions of human beings, but that have some superpowers, and once you, um, once you sever that uh, distinction between uh, God who is outside of creation and the creation itself, once that all-important distinction between the Creator and the creation is blurred, what follows is very predictable. Creation gets deified, uh, the purpose of life can't be defined, and life ends up being meaningless. When you make God nothing more than amplified humanity, all is lost. You end up with gods of human imagination that may seem convenient to worship at the time, but in the long run, they end up being nothing more than a burden. You build them a temple, you give sacrifices to them, but then in your hour of need, they can't deliver you. You pray to them, but they don't answer and they don't respond. But in contrast to those man-made gods who are burdens The Holy One of Israel is the burden-bearing God. Look at verses 3 through 4. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who've been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same, and even in your graying years, I will bear you. I've done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. Now, the Lord is not making this argument with His people at the beginning of His relationship with them. Uh, If you go back all the way to Him choosing Abraham and his descendants, God has had a relationship with Israel now for over 1,300 years. When in all of that time have Abraham's descendants had to carry Yahweh? Never. They've never had to do that. He's the one that's carried them from their hour of birth, like a mother carrying a child in the womb. Or, the other verbs in uh, verse 3 point to a shepherd carrying a little lamb, or an eagle carrying an eaglet. Uh, like that, Yahweh has carried Israel. And I want to lean in for a moment on this image of a mother carrying her child. Um, that's one of the images involved here. I think it's a very evocative image, but it needs to be explained, right? There, there's something interesting in the passage about it that needs to be explained. Um when a child is born, the expectation is that they'll, they'll, they'll grow up and mature physically so that a day will come when they don't have to be carried because they can walk on their own two feet. They can take care of themselves. And an even further uh, date way out in the future is imagined, typically assumed, that eventually they will start caring and, and uh, really helping care for their aging parent who is losing their health. Uh, but this is where God transcends the imagery of the passage. Who is it that grows old in this passage? It's not the unchanging God of Israel. It's Israel itself. It's their people. They will be as dependent on God in their graying years, in their old age, as they were from their infancy. And furthermore, there will never come a time when the people will need to carry their daughtering old grandfather God and start looking for a younger, more virile one for the future. That's not going to happen in Israel because God never changes. He's outside of His creation. He's not dependent. He he is the uh, self-sufficient, self-dependent one. Um, He stands outside of His creation. In every age of history, He is the unchanging I am. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has no limitations. He is above all the changes of time and space that that are unforeseen to us, uh, and He can carry His people through whatever difficulty they face. The gods that Judah has become so enamored with are burdens, uh, but Yahweh is the burden-bearing God who's born Israel from the very beginning of her existence. The second major contrast in this chapter starts in verse 5, And it has to do with the created gods not being able to save. Look at verse 5 again. "'To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it up on the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer.' it cannot deliver him from his distress. The logical conclusion of the contrast made in verses one through four is that there is no comparison between the Holy One of Israel and the gods of the Gentiles. All right, Uh, to which of the gods of the Gentiles could you compare Yahweh that they would be equal? The answer is none, because those so-called gods, even their own priests, they portray them as amplified humanity, not deity. And verse 7 ends by portraying the futility of praying to an idol that cannot deliver. But here's the important thing I want you to notice about verse 7. The stress of verse 7 is not the fact that prayers to this God go unanswered, even though that's true. The stress is on the absurdity of praying to a man-made thing that can't move on its own and that does not answer. You know, what what he pictures is imagine if imagine if the figurine of the God instead of being uh hand carved and beautifully ornate and decorated, imagine if it was just a block of wood right someone praying to a block of wood you'd you 'd think they were insane they've lost their mind that's the picture that Isaiah is giving like why are you praying to this this block of wood that has uh, it's overlaid with gold and silver, but when you put it there, it just stands there it can't move it doesn't answer. It can't save. And in contrast to that, the one Creator God is a Savior for all who turn to Him. Look at verse 8. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Up until this verse, the Lord has been reasoning with Judah, but now He gives a command, and I realize that command is, I think it's somewhat obscure in the English translation, uh, but if you look at the word assured, I'm preaching out of the New American Standard today. If you look at the word assured, I have a footnote in verse 8, and over in the margin of my Bible, uh, the footnote reads that you could also translate that assured, you could also translate it as be firm or take courage. So what God is doing here is he's calling Isaiah and the people of Judah to remember who he is and what he's done for them in the past. And then based on that, He's commanding them to take heart, to be courageous, to stand firm, to trust in who He is. And then look at what He says, verse 9, remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like Me. Remember what happened in antiquity? Uh, the creation, the flood, the way God protected and blessed the clan of Israel before it was a nation, the way that He redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, the testimony of all those events is unanimous. Only one being did all these things, and only He can properly be called God. There's no one like Him. He is unique among all the beings of the cosmos. He is in a class all by Himself. Now, when God gives a message in the Old Testament through the prophets, you'll see Him do this periodically. When He gives a message to the prophets and He says, to whom would you compare me? Uh, To whom would you liken me and make me equal? Uh, I'm God and there is no other. I'm God and there's no one like me. The point God is making, what He's communicating in the context of their relationship is this. You guys are acting like you don't understand what it means for me to be God. You're you're talking as if you don't get what it means that I am the Almighty. God wants them to recognize who He truly is, that He is the self-existent creator and sustainer of all things, including them. And then notice what He says next about what it means for Him to be God, right? He wants the people to understand, this is what it means that I'm God. He's going to tell you what it means. Look at the first half of verse 10. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not yet been done. Stop there for a moment. If you stop in the middle of verse 10, what makes God God is His foreknowledge, His omniscience, right? He not only knows all things past and present, He has an exhaustive knowledge of all things that will happen in the future. This is the doctrine of God's omniscience, His foreknowledge. And if you read this passage and you can affirm, well, yeah, of, of course God can give very specific, accurate prophecies because He's omniscient and He knows all things. If that's where your heart and your mind are running in this moment, you will completely miss the point of this passage. Yes, God is omniscient, but that is not what Isaiah 46 is pointing to. How is it that God can declare what will happen ahead of time? Well, according to the last half of verse 10, it is because, quote, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In other words, when God tells us what will happen ahead of time with His foreknowledge, He's also communicating His forepurposing, right, His foreplanning. He is communicating His plan ahead of time, and the reason He knows the future is because He plans the future, then He accomplishes it and no one can stand in His way. No one can stop Him, right? Who's going to stop Him? Bell, right? Nebo, uh, Satan, demons, human beings who, who uh, you know, uh, hate Him? Nobody can stop Him. And, and we need an illustration here. Imagine for a moment that you were to watch a short one-on-one basketball game between LeBron James and yours truly, all right? So, I'm playing basketball, one-on-one, I'm, I'm out there with LeBron James, right? And imagine that LeBron James said for everybody watching in the gym, uh, for everybody to hear, imagine that he, he called his shot ahead of time. He said, I'm going I'm to dribble past Chris and dunk on him. And then imagine that LeBron James did it. What would be the best way to interpret what you just saw? Would it be to say, wow, LeBron James must be a prophet? Or would it, would you look at, our relative athletic abilities and say, yeah, I mean, LeBron James, he's not a prophet, but, I mean, there was no way Chris was going to stop him. I mean, Pastor Chris just had no answer for what LeBron James can do athletically, right? That would be a better conclusion than saying, oh, LeBron James must be omniscient. He must be a prophet, right? Uh, You have the same dynamic going on here. God confidently declares His plan ahead of time and then does it, and He can declare His plan because He knows that there is nothing and no one in the cosmos who can stop Him. No one can stop Him from raising up Cyrus and then using Cyrus to release His people from exile. Now, if you think I'm making too big a point about this, Look at verse 11, because verse 11 only emphasizes the point in an even uh, greater way. Uh, Verse 11, I call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose, in context, that's referring back to Cyrus in chapter 45, uh, the man of my purpose, Cyrus, from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Why does prophecy come true? in history as recorded in Scripture because God brought it to pass. He did it. And this is why I used the Larry Bird illustration at the beginning of the sermon, right? Larry Bird declared ahead of time what his strategy was to Xavier McDaniels in that particular game with the Sonics. Uh, He declared ahead of time what he was doing and then did it. And and the reason he did that ahead of time um, is because he was confident in his athletic ability. He was confident that he would pull it off The problem with that illustration, though, is that uh, Larry Bird was not successful in every play of every basketball game he ever played in. He was a Hall of Famer who was probably the greatest uh, three-point shooter of his generation, but he never shot 100% from the the three-point line, but God shoots 100% from the prophecy line because He knows the future, because it's His purpose, and no one can stop Him. This is what it means that He's the Creator and that the man-made gods are not. And because He is all-powerful, He can deliver and save His people when they cry out to Him, whereas Bel and Nebo can't do that. Look at verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay, and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. In contrast to the created gods who are burdens and cannot save, the Holy One of Israel can and will save Judah from their exile at the proper time. And so the call of the last two verses is to accept the conclusion of the preceding argument. God has made it abundantly clear in Israel's history that he can and will deliver them. In the face of all the evidence then, if the people of Judah who hear this prophecy harden their hearts, if, if they continue to question God, it's no longer a lack of faith, but a refusal to believe, a hard-hearted refusal to believe. If they turn from this message Isaiah has, they're being truly stubborn-minded and hard-hearted. And in a way, this argument in chapter 46, it sums up the larger argument God has been making starting back in chapter 40. Judah will soon feel helpless when the Babylonian onslaught comes, but God wants them to remember that there's only one true God, and it's their God. He has demonstrated the truth of His existence not only by speaking to them, not only by intervening in their history, but by giving prophecies ahead of time and fulfilling those prophecies. Uh, Prophecy is simply him declaring his plan ahead of time, then making it happen. And now he's giving Judah yet another confirmation uh, by prophesying about Cyrus. And even if Isaiah's generation won't believe, the generation of Israel who has the Isaiah scroll and knows that the Isaiah scroll was written a long time before Cyrus is born, when they see Cyrus come on the scene it will be something that challenges them and calls them to faith and trust in Yahweh. The only real question that Judah faces now, based on this prophecy, is whether or not they're going to believe God. Now, we're in a different situation. We live in the church age. We live in a different country. I think we're primarily Gentiles here. And yet, uh, the relevance of this passage for us is the same. In fact, uh, we can actually see we have an advantage over the generation that Isaiah gave this prophecy to, because we can see and confirm that it was fulfilled in history. You can look up Cyrus, right? And there's no, no, uh, no secular people are claiming that Cyrus never existed and that it's just uh, made up by the Roman Catholic Church in the 1300s to make Scripture. Nobody, there's no crazy theories like that out there. Everybody knows that Cyrus existed. You can find him in archaeology. You can read about him and read the confirmation of how he delivered. Israel. So, we actually have this prophecy, we've seen it fulfilled, Uh, and so the question for us is, will we believe in God? And let me me say a few words about this by way of application for us. The title of the message this morning is, Take Courage in God's Sovereignty. Now, I get the phrase, take courage, from the command in verse 8, to stand firm, to take courage in who God is as they remember Him. And I get the idea of sovereignty. Uh, Sovereignty, a Hebrew word, a Hebrew equivalent for sovereignty isn't used in 46, but the idea of God saying what He'll do ahead of time and then bringing it to pass because no one can stop Him, that's where I get the idea of sovereignty from the passage. And I want to make sure that I define sovereignty well, because that sounds like kind of a big theological word. And for that… I'm going to turn to the Bethlehem Baptist elder affirmation of faith for a definition of sovereignty, because I'm a John Piper fan, and uh, this is what they say in their elder affirmation of faith. Quote, "'We believe that God from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of His glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love Him, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. We believe that God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with His eternal, all-wise purpose to glorify Himself. Yet, in such a way that He never sins, nor condemns a person unjustly, but that His ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in His image. I think that's a good definition of God's sovereignty. Now, when we consider God's sovereignty in the Scriptures, there's two uh, very, I think, common um, objections or concerns that we all very naturally have. The first is, well, what about man's free will? And the second is, if God is as good and as powerful as He claims He is in Scripture, why does He still allow evil to happen? Now, I can't resolve both of those questions uh, exhaustively in the conclusion of one sermon, but I do think I can point the way. I think I can orient us due north uh, by saying a few words here. One verse that is very helpful for me in understanding how God's sovereignty and free will and allowing evil to happen, how all that fits together, is found in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and following, the apostle Peter is speaking to the people of Jerusalem, and he's speaking to the people of Jerusalem only weeks after Jesus had been crucified and then rose again. And listen to what Peter says to them in uh, Acts 22, uh, excuse me, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. These these two verses help me with both those objections uh, because Jesus, they portray Jesus as the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And they also portray Him as the Lamb of God slain because the chief priest and the Sanhedrin nailed Him to the cross through the instrumentality of the Roman government. Right, both are in play. So when it comes to God allowing evil, uh, in this case, He allowed the most unjust thing to happen that could ever happen. Uh, not only did was Jesus not guilty of any crime by which He should have uh, experienced capital punishment, He never commit any sin whatsoever. He healed all kinds of people in Israel. If ever there was a do-gooder in Israel, it was Him, right? And it was the most unjust act in history that they condemned Him to the cross. And yet, God used the most unjust act in history to bring about the greatest good for sinners who will repent. And you can look at lesser examples of God doing this. Another one that's popular, uh, right, it would be the Joseph story. Uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and yet God used that to get Joseph into Egypt and then preserve Abraham's family line and many other nations uh, from a seven-year famine that was coming. And I think we all have personal examples of things like this that God has allowed into our lives, things that were bad at the time but served a greater long-term purpose and good. Uh, They were bad at the time, but God worked it out in the long run for our good. I think we all have experienced the general principle that God does allow hard things to happen but He means it for our good. But what about those things that are hard to conceive of any good coming from, right? There are some things that defy our imagination to argue that any good could come from it. What do we do with those? Well, for that, I believe Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 comes into play. In that verse, the author of Hebrews says, "'Without faith it's impossible to please God,' for those who come to Him must believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. And I would add, based on the rest of Scripture, if you come to God and you want to please Him, you must not only believe that He exists and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him, but you also must believe that He is all good and all powerful and that He takes the good and the evil and synergizes them for good for His people, right? Uh, That He can take evil and use it for good purposes, just as He did with Joseph, just as He did on the cross of Christ. At the cross, the worst sin that ever happened was in God's plan, and by the sin of the Sanhedrin, God defeated sin. Uh, The times we live in and the objections we have to God's sovereignty on display in Isaiah 46, I think are somewhat different than what the prophet Isaiah faced in His own day. But having understood the prophecy, we still face the same question the people of Judah did. Will we believe in God, and will we believe in His sovereignty portrayed in prophecy being fulfilled? Um, This vision of God who declares beforehand what will happen, not primarily because He knows all things, but because He knows what He plans to do and no one is powerful enough to stop Him, it's a breathtaking picture of God. And so, the question before the house this morning is, will we believe this? Will we praise God for His power and bow in glad submission to His sovereignty because we believe that He uses it for good? Or will we turn from what Isaiah 6, uh, 46 says, stiffen our necks, and say, I won't have it so. I won't have a God like… if, if that's the way God is, I refuse to worship Him. Uh, Will you embrace God's sovereignty as your only hope in life and death, as your only hope for answered prayer, as your only hope for meaning in the middle of suffering? Or will you insist that there's a better hope? Or would you rather just live with no hope at all? That's the question. And I would say if you've if you're a person who treasures Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've already confessed your sin and you've come to Christ, you're a follower of Jesus and you liked hearing a sermon about God's sovereignty. I would encourage you that one of the things that you can write over every bad thing that ever has ever happened to you is they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We know that God synergizes, I'm not just making that up. Romans 8:28, the Greek word descends into the English language is synergize. God synergizes all things together for good to those who love him. If you can accept it, if you can embrace his sovereignty, and be glad in it, then uh, what does this passage mean for you and I? Well, let me give you, let me close here with uh, four exhortations that I'm going to put all in the third person plural. Number one, we should take courage in God's sovereignty because God uses His sovereignty for good, and no good purpose He intends to perform can be stopped or thwarted or defeated by anyone else. That's really, I think, the main exhortation of Isaiah 46 for us. But number two, let us stand in awe of the power and the absolute freedom and the authority of God to do as He wills, just as we would stand in awe of an athlete who seems unstoppable on the court or the field, right? But when we see that in the human realm, if you're a sports fan, uh, you know, you see a display like that, and it's easy to just be in awe of what happened. Well, in an even greater way, when we view God being completely unstoppable, when we view God, if you will, shooting 100% from the prophecy line, uh, let us be in awe of Him, just as we would marvel at an athlete who is performing at the top of his game. Number three, let us pray boldly, knowing that nothing is impossible for God, and that even the most difficult things we ask for are possible with Him. And then number four, let us work confidently to evangelize the lost and encourage other Christians, knowing that no sinner is so hard-hearted that God's grace can't save them, and no son or daughter of God is a lost cause, no matter how uh, entrenched their bad habit or their troubles may be. I close with a poem from Pastor John Newton entitled Be Gone Unbelief. I think uh, the the idea behind this poem captures uh, what Isaiah 46 is communicating. Now, I confess, before I read it, John Newton was a pastor in England, 1700s. There's old English in the poem, I confess it. He uses the word Ebenezer. He means that as a reminder of God's grace in the past. He uses the word repine, which means to complain, be downhearted, be discontent. Uh, But here is his poem, Be Gone, Unbelief. Be gone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and He will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Though dark be my way, since He is my guide, tis mine to obey, tis His to provide. Though cisterns be broken and creatures all fail, The word he has spoken shall surely prevail. His love in times past forbids me to think. He'll leave me at last in trouble to sink. Each sweet Ebenezer I have in review confirms his good pleasure to help me quite through. Why should I complain of want or distress, temptation or pain? He told me no less. The heirs of salvation I know from his word through much tribulation must follow their Lord." How bitter that cup no heart can conceive, which he drank cu- quite up that sinners might live. His way was much rougher and darker than mine. Did Christ my Lord suffer? And shall I repine? Since all that I meet shall work for my good, the bitter is sweet, the medicine, food. Though painful at present, twill cease before long. And then, oh, how pleasant the conqueror's song. The Apostle Paul said that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And I would remind you that uh, this brother who wrote this poem has now been enjoying the Conqueror's song along with joy and peace in the presence of our Lord for over 214 years now, much longer than any difficulty and distress he encountered during his earthly life. And we will enjoy the same as John Newton if we endure in this faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise You for Your power, and we pray that You would use Your sovereign goodness to save us. Give us the grace to humble ourselves under Your mighty hand. Help us to find in Your sovereignty our hope, meaning, security, salvation, and courage. Fill us with a song about Your sovereign goodness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.